What's going on, everyone? I'm Harry Potvin, and welcome back to another episode of The H Panel, the show where we bring on guests from all different backgrounds to talk mental health. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Lynn Keane, a speaker, author, former broadcast journalist, and advocate for suicide prevention and mental wellness. Lynn has spent the last decade educating viewers and the general public about suicide and the harsh realities that we need to talk about more after experiencing the effects of suicide within her own family. Speaking at many high-profile events and being a guest on several CTV platforms, she has become a very respected voice on the causes that she discusses. Additionally, she has experienced a 20-year running career, sharing her passion for the sport and the mental wellness it provides, as well as being an ambassador for Lululemon Toronto. I'm very excited about today's conversation. Lynn, thank you so much for joining me on this episode today. Hey, hey, nice to meet you. Yes, yes. So before we get too started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of where you grew up, what kind of made you choose running as a passion, stuff like that? So I grew up in Toronto, um, and as a, I guess a teenager, I did like every sport that was possible in high school. Not very good at most of them, um, but I just loved being in on a team or just being part of something. But when I, I had a chance to get on the track, um, that sort of like, that was an eye-opener at probably 14, 15, and found out that I was pretty proficient at short distance, like 100 and 200. And so it was there that I, I think, um, even just competing against your own, um, you know, your fellow athletes from your, your own high school, I, I, I sort of got that competitive bug. And, you know, and then the meets that we would do with other schools and then in offset, it, it, honestly, it was like laid the, pl- the foundation for the, for me to, to, you know, be running into my, you know, middle 60s. So for a lot of people right now, especially the BIPOC community, a time like right now with the pandemic and the racial divide can be a lot on someone's mental health. Isabel mentioned in her blog um, what it's like to live with a mental illness as a black person due to not being able to kind of open up with family dynamics, gossip and stigma, or due to people not believing that, you know, black people can have a mental illness. So I have a couple questions for you. Um, how have you been able to keep mentally healthy during this time? What are some tips and tricks that help for you? And then also, what would you say to those black people struggling in moments like this who may be incredibly hesitant to open up to their family, friends, or therapists? Well, if you don't mind, I'll answer the last question first. That's hugely important. And, and Isabel's right. There's a cultural, there's such stigma just generally broadly in our communities, but in the black culture, um, it's it's just not uh, it's not a conversation I think I think if we you know I, I can sort of look to the south and look to the states my father's from um, the U.S. and not only a, a people would look down on you or it would be a sign of weakness, but it's also, um, there's just, you just don't share those kinds of things, not even within your own family. And then secondly, what can people, marginalized people, um, people that don't have access to healthcare, what can, what can, what can they do? Like, what can they benefit from sharing? So I think there's just so many layers, um, of a person of color who's also dealing with a mental health condition. If they don't have support around them, that sort of you know, prompting them and saying like, what's wrong? How can we work with you? We hear you. Um, it's very, it's very hard to, um, to share that. And I think, I think it is generally, I mean, my son, Daniel, uh, was mixed, but I don't, you know, he, he had other layers, but if you take just, just somebody, regardless of what their, their skin ethnicity, their, their skin color, their background, it's so hard to share what's going on when you don't even know what's going on. It's just, the, the, the things that it does to you, I think, um, then you add um, being a marginalized 
community member, being a person of color, it just it takes it to another level. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think um, it's a really it's a really good question, and I don't know that I can fully answer that. I can just speak from my experience, but I can I can look at the, the, the sets of the things that are converging. One is having a mental health condition and, and feeling stigmatized and feeling that you've become a burden to then publicly being looked at differently than somebody who is white skinned. So it's, it's very complex. Um, I, what I, what I would say just to that is with the revolution, with the movement that we are experiencing, those barriers are slowly going to be taken down. They're not down now, but they will be taken down because at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is look and be valued as, as a person of color, just to be valued like anybody, mm-hmm. not more, not less. For me, this uh, period of time is um, because I train for more endurance sports like um, Ironman and, and marathons. And I think in the beginning of the pandemic, I kept thinking, oh, well, well, someday, you know, sometime this year, we'll, I'll race or, you know, because that's for me, that's what gets me going is knowing that there's a race at the end of it. Mm-hmm. I have that's my, kind of my, my joy. Right. Um, but as it was becoming clear, that's not going to happen this year. I, I, I kind of went into a you know, like I, I wasn't interested in training because like, why? And then um, my triathlon coach basically said, well, think of it this way. Think of how fortunate you are that you can. And I was like, oh yeah, she's right. Yeah. <laughs> and think of, instead of thinking it for some sort of goal at the end of it, think of it as like a daily thing. Just feel good about being able to move your body. And once I started looking at how grateful, how grateful I was that I, you know, I could do it, that I changed my reference um, and just, took it down so that I could experience other things in life but I still I still maintain training because for me moving my body is mentally healthy it's when I don't do it for a few days I I I just I don't feel right Mm -hmm. so I think it's just to kind of keep moving your body forward whatever that looks like to other people um walking is massive like I think walking and even more so in some ways is a a meditation for for a lot of people you know and I'd say the other part of of um is, is engaging. So even if uh, we can't see people face to face, I mean, I just had a phone call with a girlfriend I haven't talked to pretty much with this whole pandemic. We just picked up where we left off and it just gave, made me feel happy. Mm-hmm. It just, I think we have to continue to, um, even though we don't see people and it becomes normal eyes to be isolated, we have to fight that. And even if it's one thing once a day, just try to reach out in a text, in a call, you know, a Zoom. Um, staying engaged, moving your body, eating healthy, you know, some, those are some of the things I would suggest. Perfect. Right on, right on. So my next question, um, so because I'm kind of realizing, you know, as I'm looking through social media and everything, the whole, um, Black Lives Matter movement is kind of quieting down a lot, which I think some people expected because everyone thought it was like a trend for some reason, which it isn't. So what do you think um, the next step should be for us to achieve success with this movement? Because what I'm seeing is a lot of people don't really understand that this isn't a trend and it's going to take a lot more hard work to kind of get to where we want to go. Excellent question. I, um, you know, if, if, if we look back at so sort of the 60s and see what, what the sort of peaceful marches and the peaceful movement tried, um, and they did achieve a lot, I think, we have to continue that in, in the ways that are more modern. And I think when we to truly see tangible differences is starts with each other, starts with listening to one another and, and creating space and being present, showing up for somebody that is a person of color who 
wants to share something with you or, or to um, sincerely ask questions. I think like if it's just to me, it starts there because so many of my friends who are not of color are saying, I can't believe that you've experienced that. Or, you know, I've, I've shared a lot of things on, on Instagram about, you know, things that when I was a little girl, I, I just sort of, I guess I package those things away over the years. I just sort of, you, you deal with it and you move on and yes, it does create sort of strength inside, but it also hurts. Mm-hmm. So I've shared some of that with friends and said, we can't do that anymore. You, you, you can't compare your tan to my skin color and think that that's not offensive right? Um, or touch my hair or things that I know you're not trying to be hurtful, but they hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or even some of the, the, the phrases or things that people say, just you have to consider them and consider who you're saying them to. Um, so that, that's sort of sort of the, the very grassroots in terms of, you know, in organizations, like, like if I look at the NBA and what, while what makes me feel so proud to be a person of color is watching how it organically started. And it was just like one team saying, no, we're not doing it. And it was like, what? And it wasn't that they were, they just like, they felt at that moment that we had, we couldn't do this. And then I saw broadcasters like leave their posts. Say, I, I can't, I have to join them because I think f- people are feeling something that we haven't in this generation, maybe. And it, it, it's, I know for myself who have experienced, I've experienced um, things and I continue to, it's awakened something in me. I, mm. I feel for the first time in my life that I, yes, um, I've had these negative experiences and they were, they, they're hurtful. Now I don't feel, I, I don't feel like I have to put them in a box anymore. I can expose them for what they are and then push them away because really they didn't, they didn't really contribute to who I am as a person. They mm. were someone else's understanding of what, who I was or what some, someone else of color is. So I feel so empowered and I think that's what the NBA is giving all of us and, and, and other organizations. But what they did by walking out with say they wanted three things and one of them was to have basically the vote, which is massive this year. Yeah. So they got the owners to agree to let those um, in the major cities have the uh, stadiums open up for the vote. Um, ongoing discussions. Um, and then there was a third thing, I, maybe you can remember, but there was a third, um, it was ongoing discussions about how how do we sort of influence within the NBA, how we can get um, more people of color in, in the positions, in the front offices, in the coaching ranks. It, it, it was just to watch those men and women of the WNBA, uh, they were inspiring me. Mm-hmm. And I, I, they, and, and, and this whole movement, I'd say this whole movement um, has finally, I finally found my own voice as a black person. I'm mixed race. So I kind of sit in the middle. Am I white? Am I black? I'm something different, but I, I'm owning it in a way that I don't think I ever did before. That's awesome. Was the um was the third one? I think I did. I have something to do with like uh, ad placement for black owned businesses or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There was it. It was three prongs, and I think what what I really like is there was so much buy in from all of the teams, all of the management. You could see that. I mean, look at what they wore every you know, every game yeah. and you know, it's going to take a lot more than that, but it's, it's, those are the steps where I really think the, the more we do it, the more we have this sense of like, we, we care about each other in a way that we haven't necessarily before. But if, if we, if we don't call things out, regardless of who we are, then we're complicit. And when we look at the, you know, the current administration in the U S if that's acceptable, 
then you accept racism. You accept to devalue people of color. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of things, we can't, we, we can't say that's not happening here. You know, maybe our government is, is different. We're wired differently, I think, as Canadians generally. But it's there. It's here right now. I mean, you've had guests on your program. It's, it may be more subtle here in a lot of ways. But, you know, I'll walk into a restaurant with my husband who's white and people will stare at us. Well, I'm tired of that. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm so over that, mm-hmm. you know. Why do you need to look at us just because we're different? And I think, I don't necessarily think it's our job as people of color anymore to, to educate everybody. But if somebody asks me questions, I'm more than happy to talk to them. I feel like, because that's sincere to me. Um, but just staring at a person or, you know, I remember writing a post this, this summer. Uh, I was in an elevator with my, uh, with two of my kids, three kids. And they, uh, a woman said, oh, it must be nice to be their nanny. And I'm like, oh, like, I, I just said, you better get off the elevator. Like, I just, I, 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 I was thinking about what these two kids are, you know, like maybe preschool and maybe six or something like they're hearing this, but that was her assumption. And we, ha- we have to get past these assumptions and we have to stop devaluing people because they don't, they look different than us. Mm-hmm. Right. Generally, like we don't necessarily understand them. Do we want to understand them? Um, and I think that goes for all races, you know, but, I think that I, I hear what you're saying and I, I sort of feel the same way that it feels a little quiet now, but I think things are being done, but we can't let our foot off the gas. This is, this is a, a revolution. Those marches have to continue. I think those marches were really empowering mm-hmm. and they were bringing all walks of people in the community together. You didn't have to be of color. I'm in a Oakville, pretty, pretty um, non-black community for right. the most part people there were more white people walking people asian there it was just this ball of people walking together and i think i've said this before but when we we were finishing up the march uh, we were at a marina and just above the marina is this large uh, bridge and the leaders basically um with the set of prayer and then we just took a knee and just um just reflected of, of what's happened this year and we looked up and everybody on the bridge basically was taking a knee and that was so impactful to me because it's people want to be part of something good. Mm-hmm. They, they get that this is not right. And so, so I, I think this summer of, of murder and discontent and brutality is leading somewhere. And I, I think we just, we just can't stop. And we, and we have to, as again, I think it starts with, with relationships and, and, and sort of grows out from there. Yeah. Right. Definitely conversations and, education I yeah that that's one thing I kind of looked at myself in the mirror for because like I remember when everything started I always like um I always preached like learning about uh black history like more than black history month because schools don't really provide much but uh and then I really like looked back and I was like have I really learned enough so then that's kind of what I spent my summer doing and it's kind of like I knew things were bad, but it kind of opened my eyes a little more. So education, like, is a huge component of that as well. That's awesome. I mean, I, that makes me happy. Just the fact that you you cared enough. I, I mean, I I'm born and raised in, in Toronto. We didn't we didn't learn about black history. I I don't know the history of my ancestors like I should. Mm-hmm. My father, who's eighty nine, didn't know that there was an Emancipation Day, Juneteenth. He didn't even know about that till this year. 
right. because we were, we're, we're, it's being broadcast widely about all of the things. So it's just the way it is. And I think now we, we can't go backwards. And I, I think there's this, this, because of the brutality, we just, we just can't allow those people's lives to just, to, to this, this is not a trend to your point. This is, this is lives. And we have to accept that because of their loss, we've learned so much and how do we take that and, 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 and move the needle. Right. Yeah. Don't let them go in vain for sure. I was going to ask you a different question. You kind of answered it already, but, um, answer it. I can answer it again. <laughs> All right. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so it's another huge question I've been asking in these episodes because there's a lot of debate that I've heard. Um, and I've had too many conversations trying to kind of prove people wrong on this topic. So what would you say to people who are like firm believers that Canada is not racist? I wouldn't say that the racism exists in our country. So are Canadians as a whole racist? No, I don't believe that. Mm -hmm. But particularly where we are right now, there is um, any number of white supremacy groups, uh, alt-right wing groups um, that are being emboldened by seeing people of color um, being elevated. Does that make sense to you? So these groups and these individuals mm-hmm. don't want to see Canada multicultural. Right. And so by, by having these movements, it's actually making them angrier and bringing them out. And so we'll, that that's part of it, but there will be pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is like the, if we, if we say it's not, it's just like saying, um, get over your mental health condition. Right. It exists. You feel it. It matters. And so it's the same thing with racism and it's, it's there's so many forms it can take it can be so subtle it can be as um losing your job because you find out that your partner is a different color uh it it can be um overt by um not you know moving up in in your your career path because people are holding you back but it, it exists and for us to say that it doesn't we'll never get a solution to the issues that are are in front of us and again i go back to the nba i think what made me feel so proud was watching all these people, all colors work together and they were, you know, it's a professional sport. That's what they were doing. But the point was watching all those guys together and the, the, the girls, it just, there's, there's something about coming together. It's like, um, during the, 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 the fires and the burning and like all the things that were happening all over the summer in the U S then they would show, um, you know, a cop it didn't matter what color, but they show that police officer, hugging a community member, you know, or taking a knee or doing something to show solidarity. That's massive. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that I think that will continue to trickle down and, and, but, but, but we can't ignore the fact that it exists. I've seen it. I've, I've experienced it. My whole family has. Right. So it's, it, it exists. And if you choose not to accept it, it's to say, that um, your pain doesn't exist, and that's that's not correct. So um, th- there was this um, "Silence is Violence" was a poster on one of the marches that I the march that I was in, and that struck me because it's if if we agree that there's no racism and, and we can remain silent, well then you're you're perpetuating the violence. So kind of shifting gears now to more the mental health side. Um, you've been very vocal and open about the experiences that you've had with mental health and your family has had. So for the viewers at home, what is you and your son's story? Oh, that's a 
Heavy question. It's a long time ago, it's, uh, but it feels like yesterday. Um, you know, Daniel uh, was 23 um, when he died by suicide. Daniel could have been any young guy, um, very good looking. I know I'm biased, but very good looking. But he was, he was but he, more than anything, he, um, he grew up with um, anaphylaxis, which is allergies. So he had quite severe life-threatening food allergies and, and asthma. You know, and I remember when he was little, I would say to the doctors, like, will this, will this impact his life? And they said, well, I mean, as long as, you know, you, you avoid the foods and you, 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 know, you get his asthma under control, he should, you know, he'll live a normal. But I guess what I was trying to say in those days that I couldn't actually articulate it was how is this going to affect his mental health? But when, you know, you have a two-year-old little child back then, um, he was born in 1986, we didn't understand, we didn't understand inflammation was part of the cause, we didn't understand the correlation between having a physical um, illness to a mental health condition, and so I didn't have language to, to get those questions answered, but the long, short of it is um, he learned to adapt. Um, he got his asthma under control. He became a great cook in high school. And I think as a result of, of like, he had like four major allergies. So he, like a lot of stuff was off limits to him. And he started to watch the Food Network and get really excited about creating his own. And so he was, became the cook. And, um, you know, I also look to a time when he was, um, you know, high school and, and uh, early university. He played a lot of the extreme, well, he wakeboarded, he snowboarded, he fell a lot. And back in those days, again, we weren't really talking about the damage of what happens to the container that holds your brain. Okay. And, you know, we we will never know if he had um, a, a concussion at all. But I witnessed him falling several times on the wakeboard. Um, he, he also uh, longboarded, fell, like bloodied himself like he there was trauma at some point, um, even if you didn't call it a concussion. And um, so, you, so you, you look at, first of all, you've got uh, chronic health conditions and then potential head injury. He goes off to first year university with quite a bit of anxiety of like, how am I going to feed myself? Like I'm in this public setting all of a sudden. Okay. Um, and then could it be a result of the concentration or sort of, uh, of the, of the, the, um, possible potential concussion that he actually started to really fall back at school and he he'd been a really you know decent student in terms of you know he he he, we had a tutor for him for several years just because he he had some um learning challenges with with um he could speak he could debate you to the you know nth degree but he he had a hard time sort of recording that and writing sort of his thoughts so um but anyway he dealt with that and um but he just started missing class that would have been a real big sign to us but of course we're not there so he was in Ottawa we we didn't know and of course they're they're not going to tell you um and then God asked to leave the program he could stay at the school but asked to leave the program at the end of the year because he just you know wasn't keeping up his marks so he came back and went to a university close to us but so in these period of years he was just slowly um percolating this anguish so he so the fact that he failed that first year at school or failed is even he passed but he was I think he just started to um add all the negative things that were happening in his life that he was becoming a burden Mm -hmm. and looking at himself through a lens that unfortunately when you are living with uh depression um you know 
how what you're seeing is not what the outside world is seeing and so uh, and so when he would come home on the weekends we would really just see you know Daniel the cook Daniel the great son and and we would just spend time in each other's company I, I mean I noticed he had lost weight I, I noticed he would um, go to sleep and he'd always have a light on or the tv on because he couldn't get to sleep like subtle things again I knew weren't right but I just I didn't understand if I sort of looked at that trajectory that he was heading on a path of you know catastrophe so and a lot of this learning actually Harry came after the fact for me it was just through doing research um, to try to understand so I could begin to accept in any way was was really just trying to understand Daniel's path um, there you know looking back there were years probably two three years before we could have we, we, we noticed that he had started to um, drink in the summers and he had a small business up north and he was doing really well and but then he'd have these nights where he would just, you know, drink with these buddies. And it was just, it wasn't just going out for a drink. It was becoming like a, um, you know, where he'd have a hard time getting up. And he, his behavior had completely changed. Mm-hmm. And we called him out on it. And, you know, he said, I'm going to get my act together. You know, I, I know this is wrong. And, and then you'd see the other side, like he'd be his normal self and, you know, doing what he's supposed to do, running this business. But I think as, as this anxiety and depression went on and on instead of um in some illnesses you know you can you it, it will actually get better the not depression you, it, the, where he was headed was not a good place and we were un- ill-equipped to help him and and what troubles me the most i think is um that we didn't have the understanding so you know i can't fault myself for not having the understanding at that time but because of it we would say things like you know like you get it together. Like people have done way more with a lot, you know, like these trite sayings, we had no idea that he was struggling to live and that we couldn't care for him with compassion is what haunts me because, you know, we were as close as mother and son could be. But in that instance, I couldn't, I couldn't see enough of what was going on to, to not only get him correct help, but also to just, to try to, to be more empathetic um, mm. to, to what was going on because I certainly was with all of his physical health conditions. I mean, I was his advocate. That's really what my job was. And I, I would have, you know, I would have, you know, what I wouldn't give to be able to been his advocate with his, with his mental health challenge. But I also look at it. It's, you know, when I look back, if, if I, especially young men, cause that's really all my experience with, with having a mental health condition, looking at my son is if, if, if you can get guys um, to not only speak up, but really understand that they're not their disease, particularly in that you know, 20 to 25 age group, because the problem with suicide is, especially with young men, it's way more lethal than women, where, where women will try many more times, um, but the means is different. And so, um, but with, with young men, it's, tip, it, it's often fatal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, those kinds of things are, um, again, one of the reasons why I, I started to share after I started to understand more was I thought like, I know we're not alone and I have to help another family not have to have our experience. And I know it sounds, I mean, you can't save everybody. You can, you can save one person and that's enough right. um, from one family, not having to, to live a life without their child. I mean, it's, there's, I can't imagine anything worse. 
there's just no, um, and it, it'll be, you know, we continue to grieve and we continue to manage it. And I think hearing from other people, um, uh, when I started to write and, and share publicly, that was very helpful for me because I recognized that Daniel's legacy would be that, um, his story helped another young person. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. Um, it's definitely, uh, a topic, especially in young men, that isn't, it's getting talked about more, but it never was talked about quite enough. Uh, even when I was, like, I'm only 22, and, like, when I was growing up, like, I didn't know the word, I didn't know what the word depression meant until I got diagnosed with it in first year university. So, like, mm. there's, like, no conversation about it anywhere. Can I ask what, how, what led you to, to get diagnosed? Um... All the signs, I think. I can't really pinpoint exactly when it happened, just because for as long as I can remember, I was just stuck uh, in this funk. But I was always, like, really angry and really upset at everything. And I would lash out a lot and just say, like, say questionable things like, you know, oh, I I don't really want to be here. Or, like, oh, my life doesn't matter that much. Because in high school, I had a lot of distractions. Like, I was on the rugby team, I was on the swim team, I was doing all these things, I was focusing on other things other than myself because I didn't like being up there. Right. It made me, like, scared and uncomfortable, so I did everything in my power to focus anywhere else. Um, but then once you get to uni and you're living alone, you start to get back in there, and you realize, oh, wow, there's a lot up there, there's a lot going on. Um, and I would, I, like, I remember I would go to, I would walk to swim practices at like four in the morning and where my res was, it was across the street. So I'd have to cross the road. And I remember I would, I would only cross when cars were coming and I would like try to get as close as I could without hitting it just to feel it. Cause I was like, I could like, I really want to jump out in front of this car. And if I really wanted to, I could right now. And there was like a voice saying, you should do it. So it was just, it was stuff like that. And then like, I was, I was with a girl at the time. And I remember if I got like a bad mark on a test or something, I would be like, I'm going home. And I would just, um, cut off all communication and then start like banging my head on the brick wall to try to, I don't know. I don't even know what the, like, if I could go back and just ask myself, like, what are you trying to accomplish here? Cause it didn't feel good. So I'm not sure. So it was just all these telltale signs. And then my friends were like, maybe you should go like, see what's up because it, it started. Cause I, I used to be able to hide it pretty well. And then it started to seep through. And then my friends were like, okay, you need to go get help now. So that's kind of what started it. The problem was when I got diagnosed, I'm a very stubborn person. So they were telling me all these things, like, you have to do this and that. And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't want to do that. I'm fine. So it, it, it took, like, three more years of this cycle before I realized, okay, I really have to stop and get help. So that's kind of wow. what led to it. Well, congratulations to your friends yeah. for seeing something that they recognized was not you. And you remind me... I remember Daniel doing that with his head. Like I remember his head and, but like you, he had basketball and track at high school and he was like all in and he did some community work there too. So he was, um, he was so engaged. 
So I think it came as a, you know, he probably the same way. He was probably starting to already feel things in grade 11, grade 12, but it wasn't until he got away and he had, he was in his own head. It was just like, I don't, uh, you know, you know, we, we would have discussions, but again, I, I why I'm so, um, why it's so important for me to say for others around people to understand and be educated is because, because you can't always help yourself. Mm-hmm. As evidence, you said it took you three years to actually kind of, and I, I think that's why the public family members, we need to be way better educated about the, really the hallmark signs of somebody who's suffering from depression. Right. Yeah, definitely. I'm really liking all this conversation that's going on because I remember growing up, I never had like a role model on a team or something that was like open about everything. So it was like, am I crazy for feeling this way? Because no one, like parents, family members, teammates, anything, no one above was like, I'm going through something. Cause it was always like for young men, especially it was like, I'm tough. I can get through it. Um, right. and if you can't, yeah. yeah so it, it, it's going in the right direction for sure, which is nice to see. That's just kind of what I'm hoping to do with this whole platform is like, tell the younger guys, like it's okay to, well, as cliche as it sounds, it's okay to not be okay. Like you're allowed to feel that way. Just and know that, you know, there's people out there who love you. And, you know, I, I remember writing something and somebody responded back to me and it got published in a newspaper and they said, it kind of, at first it was, I was angry about it because it was kind of hurtful. It was like, uh, you don't understand that your son didn't, you can say you love them all you want. He didn't feel it. At some point he wasn't feeling it. And that wasn't, and I thought, you're right. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I don't know what it was like to be in his head. So no amount of saying, you know, you, you were loved. Or, I mean, it, I think it's important to, to always let people know how much you care about them. But I think at a certain point, it has to be sort of real action. I'll still always say it, but I, I think his point was you're reacting from a point of thinking that he understands like, like he's well. Mm-hmm. He's not well. He doesn't understand that. And so I think Daniel had moments where he was aware of the family around him. And I think... I think when a person ends their life, I think they stayed as long, they stayed, they tried to stay. They, 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 they stayed, they stayed as long as they could. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately it's, it's our loss, but um, I think he tried everything he could to stay. Right. Definitely. Um, yeah. So I, I, I came, I, I took out a quote from a YouTube video of um, one of your speeches Uh I don't know if you protecting the emotional health of youth, mm-hmm. that video. Um, so it's just a little, it says time does heal and grief remembers. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are unfortunately a lot of family members and friends out there that deal with the suicide of a close loved one. Um, so for anyone who may be experiencing this or experiencing a similar, similar situation to the one that you did, um, what advice would you give them? Like what tips and tricks helped you get to where you're at today? Oh, well, you, if, if, particularly if it's your, if it's your family member or if it's a dear friend, I think you really have to, um, honor your pain. And, um, initially from the first moments I was running away from the pain. I think we're wired as humans to, to run, flee from pain. It's just a natural instinct. And I could only run so far because it was going to find me. And that probably took, I don't know, months, um, to, just just to walk towards the pain so I really think you have to honor all the emotions that come up and and 
and grief is not linear and you'll have everything at once and you'll have nothing at once. So you'll have one or two. It, it, you have to live with it and sit with it and just, just be around the people that can actually just sit with you that you don't, people can't, most people around us, thankfully don't have that experience, but they also don't know the things that are helpful to say. So know that. And I, I, I found what I did was I, for me, I'm not saying this is the right way or the best way, but I basically cut myself off from everybody, but both two people mm. outside of our family. And I just, I just couldn't absorb their, their, their sadness. And they just, they couldn't help me. And so it took me a long time before I will, I could be in their company, but I, uh, and in most cases I, I, I was able to return to, to most of those friendships, but I, I'd say number one, honor your pain, allow yourself time just to, because it's painful like it but if you if you don't absorb it it's 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 going to be so much harder down the road because it, it's never going to not hurt right and and for me one of the helpful things you talk about a tip was probably from day two we saw a grief town grief counselor on day three and i went to her for a year and the very first day she gave me a book and from that day forward i just read books i was reading books about loss and, and not just our loss, but all kinds of loss and, and how people have managed to, to get through horrific things. And I think that sort of shifted my own personal pain. Because the problem is with grief is that you, you just like depression, you, you look inward so much and mm -hmm. it's painful and you just look at the, what, what's gone and you don't look at, you, you don't look at a happy memory yet. I mean, you're just looking at what, what you've lost. So I think trying to, isolate isolate yourself uh in the, not isolate scratch that not isolate but if you can try to absorb in, yourself in somebody else's experience you also will develop more empathy and i think that's really um that's huge because all the basic fundamental um um i say personality traits but the, the things that we do to interact with other humans for me were gone like i literally didn't know how to interact with people mm -hmm. I became I was very very outgoing lost that completely because I it was you know initially it was just I, I what what are they thinking you know that I, I had to scrap that I don't really care what you're thinking but it it's um, it's such a complex and it is complicated you the loss to suicide is you know murder and suicide are complicated grief and there's no way around it and it's not a, I mean for us also we met with other survivors um, and then we did a survivor's um, eight-week intensive with another survivor and a counselor. And, you know, whatever it is, you just have to kind of keep on that continuum of trying to try to find a bit of light. And, and then the more light you get, the memories will start to come back. And it can be hard because you remember, like, we had such a great life together. And then you go, can't, can't go there. But today, for the most part, is I just... I absorbed myself in all of our great adventures because we had so much fun as a family of five. Mm -hmm. So I'd say number one is you've just got to um, say wallow in it, but you've got to let yourself absorb it and, and, and don't do it alone. I mean, I had help. I, I went to a counselor, right? I couldn't unpack it alone. And for me, my way was to process it was through writing. So whatever way, you know, you get a journal, you, you write down memories, you write down a letter to that person, you can be angry. We, we deserve every emotion. And so, um, and 
the problem with a tragedy is you, you, you never get the chance to say anything. And so, you know, take that journal and uh, <laughs> crying is the other side of love. So I can't, <laughs> no, you're okay. um, but take that, take that time and, and, you know, or use a, um, a phone or something and just record your feelings. And those little steps are all parts to get you back to living. And, and, and you can get back. Amazing. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you for that. That, that was great. So a little earlier, um, you mentioned that he had felt like he had become a burden to the people that he loved. And I know that that's a really common, uh, kind of feeling for people going through it. They, they don't want to open up cause they don't want to bother the people they love. They don't want to, um, they don't want the people they love to view them as annoying kind of. So what would you uh, say to someone who may be struggling internally, um, but is hesitant to open up because of this feeling that they're going to be a burden to anybody that is struggling? Uh, no one else can understand what you are going through. And we need you to ask us to help you. Um, and we want to help you because your life matters. And, the, the idea that whatever you're seeing or whatever you're feeling in your brain that's telling you something, it's not really the reality. You, you are so much better than what your brain is telling you. You have done so much. But because right now you're probably taking everything that's ever gone wrong and ruminating, in it, ruminating on it, and you can't escape that. And I want you to know that you you matter so much and you are loved, but we need you to tell us that you need someone's help. I think we have come a long way and there's probably people out there that can spot things now that we couldn't have before. Um, but I, 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 if you're struggling, you are not what you, you are not your disease. I would say if I start that whole answer over again, I would basically say to somebody, if you're struggling right now, you are not your disease. And what is going on in your brain right now is not the true picture of who you are as a human being. It's, it's a moment in time. The three three things that I, I learned very early on was isolation, hopelessness, a sense of hopelessness, hopelessness, isolation, and being a sense of burden to somebody is all a, 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 a horrific storm. Um, and so you are not a burden. Your brain is telling you that. And you are in this finite window of time. So please reach out for help. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and then kind of on the other side of that, uh, what, what can we do as friends or family of those affected to kind of show that they aren't a burden and that we're really there for them, even if their brain doesn't really believe that? You know, it's a big job to try to care for somebody who's struggling with a mental health condition. And I guess the good news is if you know that, that's, it's, it's good that you, we have that understanding and so that you can work from a different point. But if, if somebody is, um, talking about ending their life or has, um, you know, as you said, you know, running in front of cars to see how close you could come. If those things are happening to someone that you care about, let them talk, really let them share and speak their truth without judging them. Just let them talk, but also be prepared to offer them resources. You know, whether it's kids help phone, whether it's crisis, crisis services, Canada, um, or a counselor, 
or, you know, print out something from um, Canadian Mental Health Association. They've got great tools, jack.org. Go to those tools because very, very, very smart people have crafted these tools and people that have lived experience to say, these are the things that you should sort of help. These are tools that you can use. And I mean, the worst thing you could do is to to try to make it better because you can't. Right. You, you as a friend can really just sit there and be a really good ear and try to help that person create a team around them so that they are safe. And I, I would say if you are a friend is to try to get them to develop a safety plan that if they're feeling bad, they call you or they text you anytime. And if you're that good a friend, you will accept it at any time. And yeah. I, I think, um, I think, you know, as you said before, when you're alone in your head, any number of things can come up. And in the short window where you had ideation can lead to the actual, you know, ending of your life. And it's finite. And it's, it's trying to get someone past that. So I, I, I you know, I'd say it, it's really, it's not simple, but really just try to listen and then try to be prepared with some resources um, and, and develop a plan with your friend. Right. Awesome. So I think I just have one final uh, bigger question left. Um, <clears throat> sorry. <sighs> Heavy stuff, man. Um, so the World Health Organization estimates that there's around one death every 40 seconds worldwide from suicide. Um, in Canada alone, they estimate that the rate is kind of 11 and a half deaths by suicide per 100,000 people. And I know a lot of, uh, I forget the stat, but I'm pretty sure it's close to 50% of people that struggle with, you know, depression, suicidal thoughts, don't reach out for help, majorly because the stigma around it is that you're either insane or weak if you have these kinds of feelings. That stigma is kind of slowing down now, but before it was like really prevalent that only people in like mental asylums have depression or want to kill themselves. Like you're not normal if you feel that way. And that's kind of reduce the amount of people opening up because they don't want to be viewed like that. So what needs to be further done by us as a society to completely eradicate these numbers that we're seeing? Big question. Um, you know, some of the things um, that I can sort of say, you know, we're talking about having a national suicide prevention strategy. And I think rather than just this sort of strategy where people go away and talk about it, they actually have a strategy with money behind it. And they have these um, centers across Canada where young people can go free of charge to get counseling, to get um, crisis care without being admitted to a hospital. We have to have these kinds of supports long, but these are the things that we have to build to or, or, or work towards. Um, Quebec, as an example, has a suicide prevention strategy for the province. And the rates of suicide have gone down dramatically mm-hmm. uh, on the order of magnitude of over 30%, between 30 and 50% of, for young men. Wow. And, um, sorry, young people, I shouldn't say young men, but young young people. They're working, and what they've done is in, in, in different communities, uh, they've gone sort of regionally across the province and established these centres. But they're, they're, they provide mental health support, but they also provide other kinds of skills. You want to help the whole human, right? You want to help their brain heal, but you want them to also have other skills and, and things to be hopeful for. And so I think they look at um, sort of the whole person, but it's, it's, a, it's a fabulous uh, program that, uh, I don't know when it was instituted, but our provincial and federal governments have to come together and establish something that is a framework that throughout 
Canada and in our indigenous communities, in our um, underserved communities, people of color, um, our immigrant communities, that people, you know, with a language barrier can go in and in their language, tell them that they're hurting. You know, all, all we really know now is some of the hospitals have these um, navigator programs where um, you can, without being admitted to the emergency, you can be on a wait list to get to a psychiatrist and get to a counselor and things like that. But that's time. That's that's yeah. time and, and not everybody has the benefit of that. Right, yeah. So I think it's, you know, we're a long way from, from establishing it, but I think Canadian Mental Health Association has these one day or not sorry one day several times a week they have these open hours and you can you can just basically call up that day and say i need to talk to somebody and it's free of charge you just walk in and you you know you share your your story and that will lead to other supports being put in place and just again getting 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 something around you so you don't feel that you have to be all in your head and you are that you're alone in this mm-hmm. um and, and i think the language the language has changed which is i think helped to destigmatize the whole issue of having a mental illness because it's 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 a it's it's just like a physical illness it's just you can't always see it um so language i think has definitely changed i think people speaking out about it you know i I look at sick not weak that michael landsberg started i mean that really helped a lot of young men to really understand that i'm not weak i'm just i'm not well um but this is ongoing. I, I mean, there's a, uh, a group that um, I'm, I'm on, on the, one of the committees. It's for, um, it's called Project Now, and it's out of the Trillium Hospital. And their goal is, is you know, by 2020, just 2029 or 2030, to have zero suicide in, in um, Peel, hmm. in Mississauga and Dufferin Peel area. And how are they going to do it? Well, it's by putting things in place for that community. And it's, it's going to have to be community by community. And I, I, you know, it would be great if it was mandated and there was funding for communities to have these outreach centers, but it's by having these committees that are made up of survivors of suicide loss, of people that have attempted suicide, so that they can dig into the depths to understand this beyond the clinical part, understand real lived experience, and to then target the supports for that. Um, And also the supports for the people that are trying to support someone living with a a mental health condition. So it's, it's, it's multifaceted. It's, I'll say this. In 11 years, we've come a long way mm-hmm. because prior to losing Daniel, I don't, I think we talked about suicide in our family twice. Um, now it's a broader conversation. We have these conversations and, and, and I, I think, you know, again, back to this last question, families, parents have to arm themselves with understanding because that's really, because you're going to, you live with your kids, you're going to understand something, even if they're living away you'll see a behavioral change that's not right. And if it's starting to fit a pattern and you're starting to see, you know, you know, this is, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. They're staying away. They're not, they're isolating themselves. They don't sound very hopeful. They stop doing things. Those are not good things. Like, and not going to class, um, you know, now this, with this pandemic, it's like, well, it's off, you know, where do you start? But there are some, as you know, some very specific behavioral changes to, that happen to people. And we as parents have to understand that. So we can't control what happens, you know, from, with our government perspective, with mental health um, and, and how they will help us. So I'd say at the very least, as a parent, we have to understand more. And as family members, we have to understand more and friends. And because it happens one-on-one. That's a great point. And with that, I kind of, those are all my questions for you, Lynn. 
Once again, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. So now I kind of just give uh, the platform to you for like the next couple minutes or seconds or whatever to kind of give you a shameless plug for anything you got going on. <laughs> so if you got anything going on in your life that you want the viewers to know, now is your chance. Oh, uh, gosh. Um, well, my daughter's getting married in a week, so that's good. Oh, congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah, mid a pandemic. Um, you know, I, I actually, it, this podcast sort of uh, working with you is sort of the last thing I'll be doing for a, for a bit. Um, I've been working pretty much nonstop, either writing or talking or something um, between the mental health issues uh, in a pandemic. Um, I do have a piece um, that's out currently on uh, the Inspire magazine there on Instagram, and it's basically suicide prevention um, in the time of a pandemic. So um, if you want to get some further information, and Dr. Ian Daw is on it as well. Um, and we also did a, a video chat with this new band called uh, Her. And these are young women talking about their mental health and uh, what it's like to live, you know, trying to make music in a pandemic. But, uh, you know, if anybody wants to take a look at that, um, just a lot of good information there. Perfect. Yeah. And I'll put that all in the description below. As for my viewers, I will see you guys next time. Thank you for watching another episode of the H Panel. I really appreciate you guys. For more episodes of the H Panel, click this button right here. And if you want to subscribe for more videos from myself, subscribe is right down below. Thanks, guys.